lots of 25,000 gold pieces worth of wishes as well. We're resting for two days? Cool, two wishes, 50 grand more. <laughs> At some point, we knew that another war was going to break out between Seer and what's my home country? Live from the Mundangerous Shipyard in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 63 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're discussing the culmination of character development and how to complete a character's arc. But first, the party finally battles their arch nemesis in the Morning Glory campaign. And later, Swamp Thing proves it ain't easy fleeing green in the Character Creation Forge. You mean... Swamp Thing, he is amazing. He fights everything nasty. I believe I just learned that that only had five episodes. (laughs) (laughs) They were the only five episodes I watched. It was a total knockoff of Captain Planet. (laughs) Which also informs everything I know about Swamp Thing. (laughs) Sorry, nerds. Five episodes, let's see. Uh, He fought a polluter in the swamp, obviously, to introduce who he was. Uh, Then did he fight drugs in the inner city? That was probably episode four. No, 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 no. He never left the swamp. He did go down to the Amazon where Dr. Arcane sought the trees that never die. Wait, how did he get to the Amazon if he never left the swamp? Oh, he just teleported, right? Yeah, he just teleports in swamps. Transport via plants? Yeah, it's just his thing. We'll get to that. It's like he uses phloem and xylem. Oh, God, really? I don't know. (laughs) Just another plant part. (laughs) He's photosynthetic just like Superman. (laughs) Yes, I suppose so. (laughs) All right, when when are you leaving New York? Because <laughs> I hear you're going away. Uh, yeah, I am headed to a catacon, uh, November 11th through 13th in Dayton, Ohio, and I've just now booked my flights. This will be your second year running as an extra special guest. Second year attending. I don't know if I was a special guest last year. You were the total party thrill delegation. That's true. I'm still that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I also got my game submitted that I'll be running. So I'm running Fiasco on Friday. We did that last year and had a blast. And then on Sunday morning, probably, I'm going to run D&D 5e. You know, it's just like you to pick Fiasco to run because you don't really run. Because I just want to play it. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's the perfect way to kick off a role-playing game convention, I feel like, because it's just, you know, joke around, have fun, get in that kind of mood, right, with some strangers. So what is the premise of the 5e game? Well, we've got a heavy theme of mercenary companies in our uh, in our games nowadays, and I am going to double down on that. With the uh, the players will be members of a mercenary company who has been ambushed and left for dead, and they need to figure out why, and you know, kind of redeem themselves because they have failed in their mission. Their cargo has been captured. Does everyone start at one HP? Uh, actually, yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was just planning on how to do that. Uh, yeah. So I think the opening scene, and spoiler if you're intending to play in my game, will be one of the players kind of waking up to a bandit who is rifling through his pockets uh, after having, you know, passed out from loss of HP. And then as soon as he, you know, takes any action to be otherwise alive, the bandits will blow a horn calling in reinforcements and waking up the other PCs. And then they get to fight bandits. <laughs> I got an idea for how they can recover HP relatively quickly. So they can actually have a chance in the fight, but also eating the fallen—they're like bandits, right? So like, all you got to do is like kill a couple of them, and they run oh, away. Oh, they have D three hit points. Yeah, and yeah. you just like you know, a couple of them fall, and like the rest of the bandits run, right? I mean, wouldn't you if you were a bandit? Yeah, obviously. I mean, 
but yeah, I'm thinking it's going to be a super low magic world, so probably no magic characters at all, just marshals. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's going to... What level? Uh, like three or four, but I'm expecting to kill some PCs. I'm pretty psyched. All right, so get in line if you want to play in this game. <laughs> yeah, see if you can not die. <laughs> There'll be a prize for anyone who doesn't die. You get to keep your character sheet. I don't rip it up ceremoniously. Set it on fire. Right. Uh, but I want to bring a couple other games that I've kind of got prepped in my back pocket because the way a Catacon worked last year, if I hadn't been sick, I would have had a lot of time to play games kind of ad hoc. And I missed that opportunity because I spent every moment I was not playing a game sleeping. You also got sick at Gen Con. Yeah, I got this bad luck with that. a theme for you. No, I was, man, it was so much worse at Gen Con, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> Gen Con, I was like laid up in bed. I just had the sniffles last year at a Catacon. I just felt bad. I didn't want to get people sick. From diseases. Right. Yeah. All right. Enough about my failing health. Let's talk about the Morning Glory campaign. So when last we left the party, they had decided to set an ambush for their arch nemesis, the Rakshasa Nistrum Shadar. They had his true name, so they knew they could summon him. But what they needed from him was the true name of Belshalor, the shadow in the flame, so that they could stick it in their prophetic apparatus and then be able to actually kill this fiendish overlord. I'm not going to make a Trump joke on stick it in. (laughs) (laughs) Just grab him by the true name. Right. (laughs) Oh, God. I would rather have President Nistrum Shadar. Because <laughs> he's lawful evil. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. All right. So the party, wanting to avoid collateral damage, proud of them, went to the waste in Zendrick, where they had originally met the Drow Queen and then later defeated Belashira and had set uh, suboptimal traps for, we, for Nistrum. We set the exact right amount of traps, <laughs> <laughs> including a pit filled with acid. Right. And a flump house. Lou turned into a flump so she could read his telepathic communication. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the party finally uses Nistrum's true name to summon him. In the process of speaking a name of such an evil, immortal being physically damages them, uh, those who say it and those who hear it. So, you know, it hurts. But he does appear. And as soon as he does, Emery does what Emery does and force cages him in the acid. (laughs) <laughs> Which puts us in a positive negotiating position. Right. Like George Washington's opponent's wife's hand. <laughs> he's sitting in acid while he's talking inside a force cage. It's hurting him a bit, a little bit. But then seeing all of you and being a bit surprised that he has been called unwillingly, which is not something that he's used to, he begins to parlay. And of course, the party takes turns using his true name, Anzul Aresh, the subtle herald to command him to give up Belshalor's true name, which he resists fairly well. The party knows that the more powerful a fiend is, the more able they are to uh, resist commands given to them using their true name. So whoever speaks the name suffers a great deal of necrotic damage. Everyone else suffers a bit less because they're hearing it. People are bleeding from the corners of their mouths and, and their ears, and he is basically resisting with saving throws to prevent himself from, you know, blurting out the true name of his uh, overlord. And in the meantime, basically just sort of taunting the party and all the spellcasters are standing around ready to drop counter spells because they know exactly what he's capable of. And that's also 90% of what we're capable of doing to him because he's immune (laughs) to six level spells and below. (laughs) Now they know that Nistrum can't just teleport away because the party will just use his true name to summon him again. So they're 
spitting these evil syllables and, and he is resisting them to the best of his abilities. But eventually, he fails to save. Now, from a mechanical perspective, he could have started burning legendary resistances to automatically succeed on these saving throws. He did not, because he knew he couldn't get away. Eventually, this was going to come down to a fight. He could give up his master, or he could potentially save his own neck. And of course, that's what he decides to do. So eventually, he is forced to, to give up the name. And, and when he speaks these syllables, the party doesn't hear any actual words. There's just almost like a sort of a static in their brain, which is extremely painful. Lots of necrotic damage all around. But this sort of black mass emerges from Nistrum's throat that takes actual physical form and is floating in the air. And then the, the party releases the apparatus that they have constructed of their vestige construct cube, the solar cocabial trapped inside a Sybaris shard. The head of the Lord of Blades. Oh, sorry, the skull of Raltukesh. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> the heart of Katashka. The Draco Lich. This black mass is surrounded by these four objects which begin rotating in the air. Cube and Kakabiel form the top points of a compass-like structure, and Katashka and Raltulkesh begin spinning around on the horizontal plane, and within this cage of sorts is trapped the mass that is Belshaler's true name taken form. And this floats above the party until... One of them, and I believe it's Lou at this point, decides that she will be the one who currently carries the burden, and the entire thing shrinks down into a small tattoo on her forehead. In her flumpy forehead? <laughs> <laughs> at this point, Nistrum knows he's done a very bad thing, and so he decides, forget this, I had better kill all of you. Right. So he teleports outside the force cage, and the battle begins in earnest. It is essentially a counterspell battle for a while because he needs to teleport away by casting a spell there are three spell casters currently capable of casting counter spell however he has multiple reactions and legendary actions so he can cast off turn spells the rest of you are making sure that at least one of you has a counter spell nearby but if you can't use a high enough level slot he's able to to get past it and you know move outside and of course once he's outside the force cage he's extraordinarily mobile yeah so what does your superpowered Rakshasa look like? <laughs> the party's fought him before, but he's a bit tougher now because this is four years later. Yeah, and you know, Rakshasas are out there adventuring and gaining XP. Yeah, of course, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> when you have a solo monster spec to take on a 19th level party. Yeah, he's, he's <laughs> got to be amped up a bit. So I, I gave him super damage resistances to weapons under plus two, which don't really exist in the monster manual. Immunities to fire and poison because he's a fiend. He's got telepathy and true sight. He's got great perception. He can lie without anyone being able to tell that he is lying. He also had like advantage on saves against magic and different things too, right? Exactly. And plus that immunity to spells below sixth level. Now this is all information the party had, so they were prepped for. It. They knew this would be a tough fight. And he's got a very large one-handed blade made of shadow stuff. That they know deals a bunch of necrotic damage and then also prevents healing. And, of course, he's a high-level spellcaster. That is really where most of his punch comes from. In order to avoid the constant counterspells from the party, he gets up close into melee, you know, and lands three big attacks with his weapon. But in between their turns, he's also dropping spells. One of his legendary actions is just cast a spell. So part of the time, that's just baiting one of the 
party to cast the counter spell so that he can actually get off, say, a power word kill or a circle of death. <laughs> and the party is, okay, we need to kill him. Do I counterspell his shield? Do I wait? Because obviously he's got something else lying in wait. Right. And we're like, who's gone? Who's going next? Who's got a reaction? Who doesn't? It was an interesting counterspell battle. In addition to like a really hard melee fight for the melee characters. Because they kept getting whacked with the sword and not being able to recover from it. Right. No healing for them. Right. So they were like on a firm timer. And the rest of us were just trying to hold out long enough to get that killing blow. So this clearing basically turns into a mini apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Nishram is heavy on evocation spells. He's also heavy on uh, spells with constitution saving throws because that doesn't allow the rogue or the monk to completely ignore all the damage when they inevitably save. That was me. Smart. I did that. Thank you. (laughs) It's a lot of blight. (laughs) (laughs) Cone of cold. Right. (laughs) Area effect spells, because those are just more interesting when you're when you're fighting a solo. But then the party is also dropping these sort of massive effects. They're level 19. You know, you had two wishes on your side at this point, but although you didn't want to burn them immediately. And we had two simulacra as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One simulacrum did get, uh, it was Emery's actually, did get reduced to a, a lump of ice and snow yeah (laughs) i believe that one was melted with a fireball probably a one shot too (laughs) the thing about simulacra is they don't have a whole lot of staying power they don't heal anyway so and half hp so there's just rocks and ice falling from the sky flames erupting in midair several characters making strange motions with their hands but then nothing actually happens and other people are looking down with their hands and wondering why nothing's happening But finally, as the sorcerer and the warlock stave off the brunt of Nistrum's attack spells, the paladin and the monk and the rogue are able to gang up on him in melee and bring him near death. But the party then backs off because what they actually want to have happen is for the bard to finish him off. As part of the epic destinies that I gave each member of the party... Uh, she, as a fiend slayer, was able to banish Nistrum for a year and a day if she actually delivered the killing blow. Otherwise, he's going to resurrect in like three days. <laughs> right. And then you have to do this all over again. Right. You do not have time for that. <laughs> so when Nistrum is finally near death and his last spells have been countered out of his hands, Emery approaches him and I believe fires an arrow into his face point blank. Yeah. Yeah. And he explodes into flame and burns away to ash. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So that certainly was the end of a character arc for many of the PCs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which brings us to our main topic, (laughs) completing character arcs. (laughs) So the campaign has an overall plot, which we've talked about a lot, you know, every campaign. But each individual PC in your game also has their own goals within the story. You know, maybe those first appeared in their backstory that they created before you even started playing. Maybe it was uh, presented early on in the in the game by a player as a plot hook so the GM could figure out a way to really draw that character into the story. Or maybe much later, it was an additional plot hook for the character that was introduced by the GM, either to get someone more interested in the game who seemed like they were losing interest, or it was just some sort of natural outgrowth of events that happened in the story. So certainly, of course, at the beginning of the Morning Glory campaign, no one was interested in killing Nistrum Shadar because they didn't know who he was. He hadn't been introduced as an NPC yet. Right. And then as the story continued, the party fought him on multiple occasions and just hated him. Although, interestingly, when Brand joined, 
Shane's character at level 7 because he came in a bit later. Level 8. <laughs> Nistrum was already introduced in your backstory because we had talked about that. Right. Well, I had left a hole in my backstory for mm-hmm. you to fill, and you filled it with Nistrum. Right. It was like my rival that I was supposed to be tracking down as uh, he was suspected of heresy by the Inquisition. He was an Inquisitor suspected of heresy. Mm-hmm. And that's not something we'll get to a little bit later is being able to tie all of these potential plot hooks together so that you're not balancing seven different storylines. But whatever the reason for a character's goal or an arc to exist, it needs to be woven throughout the narrative. Yeah, eventually you need to get to some sort of payoff, both for the character and for the player playing that character, right? Right. You need to come to some kind of satisfying conclusion for every circumstance or goal that is presented either by the GM uh, or by the player themselves. Now, satisfying conclusion. You, of course, mean a happy ending, right? Oh, of course. Obviously. Every time. (laughs) (laughs) Even though in Morning Glory, we we did really have a lot of happy endings to our character arcs. Not all of them, though. No, not all of them. (laughs) (laughs) No, but satisfying means different things to different characters, right? Mm -hmm. So a noble sacrifice is a satisfying conclusion for a certain kind of character and player. Yeah, and what you're really going for is a satisfying ending for the player and the people at the table. It's quite possible for the PC to be frustrated about the way that something turns out, but the player themselves, maybe that's what they wanted to have happen, or they found the result to be surprising or intriguing, and they're fine with that. I've definitely had players come to me at the beginning of a campaign and be like, okay, actually, I want this character's goals not to come to fruition. Like, that is the arc I imagine for them. Right. Outside of long campaign games, right, like D&D and and those sorts of things, if you look at Fiasco, it's about shaping the character arc of just a couple characters over the course of eight scenes. But in Fiasco, oftentimes you expect your character to have horrible outcomes, right? You're not necessarily getting a victory. You're not getting to do what you wanted to do. You're not finding out some uplifting thing about your character. You're getting a shallow grave. That's fine, because that's what you're signing up for when you play Fiasco. It's right there in the name. Yeah. Sometimes the most satisfying conclusion is bad news. Think about the Lord of the Rings. One of the things Gimli wants to do is find out what happened to the dwarves in Moria. Well, spoiler, they all died. They were killed by a Balrog. That sucks for them. It sucks for Gimli. But it's a good story, and it's it's fun to hear. And for a player playing a Gimli character, that is satisfying because, hey, now you know. Yeah, and now it's a question of how you react to that and how you move on from there as a character. Yeah, exactly. The other thing to keep in mind is that you want what's most interesting to both the player and the party. So it may be really great for an individual player to find out that, hey, it turns out I'm royalty. But in the context of the story that you're all telling, does that then make it sort of boring for everyone else in the party if they're peasants and now you're, you're dealing with someone who's like birthright is a kingdom? And how does the story not then revolve around that person? Right. Yeah, or the flip side, right, is sometimes characters like that recede back into the background, right? I just want to be an anonymous person again. You know, it's the superhero walking away kind of thing. Yeah, so if it's not going to be disruptive, but it'll be fun for a player, yeah, go for it. Right. So there are a couple sort of broad ways to end a character's arc. And this doesn't mean at the end of the entire campaign. You know, we talked about in previous episodes the three-act structure, and, you know, there will be shorter story arcs and shorter arcs for a particular character. You know, a question is answered or a task is completed. 
that happened, you know, much earlier before the end of the actual campaign. Yeah, I mean, just for Morning Glory, keep in mind, Lou's arc ended when she was like level 12. Yeah, one of hers, definitely. Her, her main arc, right, was mm-hmm. meeting and eventually killing Belashira, <laughs> <laughs> right? And then it became about the cult of Lou. <laughs> one of the most common options for having and then ending an arc is answering a question. This happens particularly early on in a campaign. You know, you'll have a character where their backstory is, what does this mysterious tattoo I have mean? Or maybe a a scholar is wondering, you know, how did that ancient tiefling civilization that I heard about, how did it actually meet its end? I want to find that out. I want to discover that. Yeah. What happened to my family after the war? I was off on the front line and I came home to nothing. What happened to them? And like we said before, this might be bad news. It could be they all died and it was horrible. It could be, hey, actually, it turns out they're still alive and now you can go find them. Like we've talked about before with an investigation, there should be an actual answer to the question that a PC has. As a GM, make the decision about what the answer is and then don't change it. You know, Because that's really the easiest way to make sure that whatever evidence this PC is uncovering or whatever info you need to give them on the fly is consistent and coherent across multiple sessions that, you know, they could be investigating this arc for six months or a year. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to have to think every single time, oh, wait, what did I say last time? Right. So you did this with Bahar's parents, right? Yeah. Early on in his original backstory, uh, when Angela was creating Bahar, he said, okay, I'm inquisitive with House Madani. My parents were as well. Uh, but they disappeared in the day of mourning, and I don't know what happened to them, and I want to know what happened to them. So you decided they were in Metrol, and whatever happened to Metrol happened to his parents. But then over the course of the game, <laughs> we later learned that was Bahar's fault that they were in Metrol. <laughs> <laughs> that was sort of a gift to me. Right, right. <laughs> I knew that they were in Metrol, so it was going to be bad news. And I knew that I personally, as a GM, didn't want to have to deal with, like, reuniting with his parents and i knew that angelo didn't really want that right you know? he didn't want to have to like role play that out he was just his character was interested in finding out what happened and really the most interesting thing for him as a player would have been oh they died and here's some interesting information about that right but during the time travel scene when he contacted his house that was a great opportunity for me to supply that as the reason why they were sent to metro in the first place so yes he ended up killing his own parents but really that was fair play that was turnabout for a previous campaign where angelo made my character kill his own parents Wait, we'll get to that we'll get to that that's that's a future example <laughs> it was just it was a just decision <laughs> another example of a character arc is meeting out justice where there's some injustice so this is you know maybe a village has fallen on hard times and you're trying to restore its prosperity or there's a warlord or a dictator who's threatening your home and you want to end that threat. This sort of falls under a broad category of completing a task. I think it's very common in early backstories for players to say, here is a goal that my character has. It is to do a thing, accomplish a thing, go get a thing. Yeah. Hey, GM, here's what I want to do in this campaign. (laughs) Show me the rod of seven parts. (laughs) Or it's just a small thing. Like it's basically a fetch quest. Right. You know, early on, oh, I have been sent to take a ring to Rivendell and then I'll be done. Oh, cool. Huh. Awesome. Uh, Well, I guess you'll be back next week then. (laughs) These sort of task completion goals are often party goals. Partially because, you know, it usually involves traveling. You need to go somewhere in order to accomplish this thing. And, of course, you're all traveling together. So 
it's really easy to adopt that goal as your own if you don't really have a goal. Yep. Or it sometimes, you know, behooves a GM to make sure that everyone is invested in the accomplishment of this particular task, whatever it might be. Yeah, you just make sure that there's a good reason for other people to be interested in that quest, Yeah, right? You you make the stakes high enough that other characters naturally care. And whether that's because the reward is great or because the, the benefit has some personal tie to the other characters as well, doesn't really make a difference mechanically. Yeah, so once Kallik found out what had actually happened to the Nation of Seer, one of his goals was return it to the material plane. Right. But of course... That ended up being a goal of the entire party. Now, that didn't mean that it was no longer Kallik's personal goal and that when that actually happened, it was the end of a character arc for Kallik specifically. But it also ended up being the end of an arc for many other people as well in the party. And disappointed one surly Inquisitor (laughs) (laughs) who had come to like the world without Seer in it. (laughs) You have returned the arch rival of your home country (laughs) to the world of the living. And then had to stand in their queen's personal retinue. <laughs> no, this is this is for the greater good. Right. No, no, it really is. Believe me. That's all right. While I was off gallivanting around in the past, my country went to shit. <laughs> You're working on fixing that? Yeah. Mostly with the pogrom. Right. <laughs> okay, so you've completed your backstory quest. What do you get as a reward? Loot. Loot is always great. (laughs) People tend to pay you after you bring them a thing. Right. I must deliver this missive to the king. It is extremely important and only he may open it. Great. Now he gives you a magic item or maybe some money. Or you have to kill a certain person, maybe the the person responsible for your parents' death. And in doing so, you recover a family heirloom. Mm -hmm. Or loot the body. Or or maybe just, (laughs) you know, some evil sorcerers cool toys (laughs) the nice thing about the completion of a task is that in itself it is its own reward both for the pc but particularly the player but it's nice to really emphasize it with some kind of tangible benefit now maybe that is money or a magic item but maybe it is access or a contact or a title of some sort yeah, I think as a GM and a player, you, you have to meet in the middle where the reward has to be substantial so that the player cares about it, right? But the reward also has to be the sort of thing where the character is going to value that possibly more than its actual worth, mm-hmm. right? Because it represents the completion of it. And I think Kallik's sword, his Holy Avenger, was a perfect example there because that sword beat the crap out of him for being evil. (laughs) But he insisted on trying to use it until he eventually was able to convert into a good and positive paladin. Yeah, Kallik's sword was the gift that kept on giving. He received it at the end of an arc when he finally discovered that his daughter is alive. Right. You know? It was her sword, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, his, it was her sword that she had gotten from her mother, his dead wife. Right. So... You know, he began as, I'm going to avenge the death of my family. He finds out, actually, my family didn't die. He finds out, oh, actually, my wife did die, but we have a daughter that I didn't know about. And then she died. (laughs) (laughs) He got the sword before she died. (laughs) But there's an heirloom that ties all of this together. It, It draws it through. Finally, I am, in a way, reunited with my wife. P.S. The sword is sentient and hates me. Yeah. And the rest of the party is telling him, dude, get rid of the sword. It's not working for you. Why are you why are you beholden to this sword that is just hurting you? So every time he would draw it, or every time he would attempt to wield it in combat, 
the sword, knowing that he was not pure of heart, took its toll. It punished him with... Psychic damage. Yeah, large amounts of psychic damage. <laughs> and he said, I don't care. Right. You know, I, I deserve this. This is my penance. And out of character, we're like, Jim, just... <laughs> Trade the sword in. <laughs> he Get was like, a new sword. He was like, absolutely not. Because this was this was his arc, right? What would a Calic who is torn about, you know, the years he spent sort of lost, what is he going to do when he finally discovers that, you know, he has this purpose and it is given to him from his wife who he thought had been dead the whole time? Mm-hmm. Of course he's going to continue down this path. And it ended up paying off for him because I think it was even in the fight with Nistrum it finally met the conditions that I had set for it, dealing enough damage to him that the sword said, okay, you've met your penance. Yeah. <laughs> and then he went ham. <laughs> Once the sword felt, oh, it had meted out enough justice, it was like, okay, no, we're on the same side now. You are doing good. Let's kill this guy. Right, right. And then it was a, a full-fledged uh, Holy Avenger Plus, basically, right. like a high-end legendary item that he was fully attuned to. So... You have a problem if you do this at lower levels, right? Mm-hmm. Because you've got a long progression and a magic item might not be useful. The The magic item that's useful at level 5 or level 4 is likely not to still be as useful at level 20. Yeah, Calic didn't get this sword into level 14. Right. So I think one of the things you want to look at is leveling up the item, right? So if mm-hmm. that weapon is, say, a plus 1 sword, right, and it's your family's heirloom sword, maybe that becomes a plus 2 sword at a later point. It becomes a plus 3 sword at the end game so that the power level is increasing in line with the other characters, but that sword is physically the same. It, it has that same emotional connection for the character. Mm. The other thing to do is to just make it a utility item rather than, you know, something that is directly involved in, you know, attack and defense roles. Right. Right. Yeah. Especially something that doesn't require attunement in 5e. <laughs> That's <Right>. helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so the other way that you can end a character arc is I think, usually the most fun but it can be the most difficult and that is by forcing a character to make a character defining decision these plot hooks that players introduce often involve one of the pcs determining something about their life path you know they're, they're not really sure which direction they're going to go we'll see how things play out as we continue the game i don't really know what i'm going to do at like level 16 or whatever so sometimes that is the choice between Am I going to be good or am I going to be evil? Mm-hmm. Or am I going to stay on the lawful path and follow you know, my training as a monk? Or am I going to be more underhanded and become a rogue or continue my training as a rogue? Yeah, am I going to honor my obligation to my country or to my king? Or am I going to avenge my family or honor my family? Yeah. Do I maintain the honor of my clan or do I do what is good and right and just? Yeah, even if that will cost me personally. We've talked a lot before about presenting moral quandaries for your players. And a situation like this doesn't necessarily need to be moral. There could be just other reasons that they might make one decision or or another. But you want to present an in-game choice that closes off some options to a character, but then opens other options. And it's up to them which direction they go. Yeah, so one of the easiest ones to implement that works at almost any level is the question of the villain begging for quarter. Mm -hmm. Don't kill me. Send me to jail, right? And you just have that question of neither is a wrong answer, right? Because in lots of fantasy settings and in lots of settings, period, immediate justice is fair. Right. 
and these are usually categorically evil. <laughs> so yeah, this should be a situation right. where the player would not be frowned upon by most people if they just killed them. Right. Neither would they be frowned upon for taking them in for the king's justice or whatever it is to stand trial or, or whatever that form is either. Right. Mm-hmm. Both answers are right. But which one you choose tells you something about your ideals as a character. Yeah, and particularly early on in a campaign, it can help a player determine something about their PC that they may not have known. When someone is sitting at the table and thinking, I don't know, what would my character really do in this situation? They've got to make a decision. They're either going to kill them or they're going to let them go or, you know, take them in. Yeah. And you don't want to subvert the PCs in this moment either, right? You don't want the party arguing over, well, do we kill him now or do we take him back to town and then have the villain sneak out the back door, <laughs> right? Like, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, the the point isn't to, like, take their goals and then invert them and go, ha, ha, ha. Right, like, oh, I'm smarter than you. Ha, PCs lose again. <laughs> like, <laughs> cool, dude, you could have just made the fight harder. <laughs> You want to present a real choice. You know, they can go either way. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have in-game consequences later on, right? I think about Saving Private Ryan, right? They're deciding, do we shoot the German or do we not shoot the German? Right. And that question has consequences both for who those characters are and, like, who we realize that they are internally, but then also actual in-game, well, in-story consequences for those characters later on. Yeah, and just like Saving Private Ryan, right? When you let that character live, he doesn't have to come back to kill you, right? He could just happen to come back and be one of the faces you recognize in the large horde of bodies you're leaving behind. I mean, they could come back and save you. That works as well, yeah. Do you want to use this PC indecision about something as a fulcrum for forcing that decision that then a PC later needs to live with? It's something that's going to inform the way that they think about themselves or the decisions that they'll make long into the future, you know, levels and sessions years later. Or the way that the world sees them. Mm-hmm. Going back to that simple example of do they pay their punishment in death or do they live imprisoned? You might be known as the merciful <laughs> instead of the just. And maybe some NPCs give you more jobs because of that and others give you fewer. Right. Later on in a campaign, these kinds of options can also reinforce character traits that already exist. And that's not necessarily the end of a character arc, but it is a really nice way of sort of rewarding a player for playing a PC with a consistent compass. Actually, we didn't mention this in the Deck of Many Things episode, but in one of the rooms, Emery had a choice. She could either save her own soul, which was in one side of a contraption, or the souls of 25 innocents on the other side of the contraption. And Steph was thinking, no, of course Emery doesn't pick her own soul. Of course she saves innocent people. Well, actually, quicker than that (laughs) was Bastion going, oh, this is obvious. You take your soul and then reaching for it and getting zapped. (laughs) Yeah, Emery going, you stay away from that. (laughs) Not your choice. (laughs) It was a nice moment for Steph to be like, oh, yeah, no, Emery's a real person. You know, of course she would make this decision. Of course, this is what I'm going to do. What about when you finished an arc? You've finished that sort of character-defining moment. How do you move forward in the campaign? Yeah, because you don't want to then go, okay, well, you're done with your character growth and your arcs, so none left. Yeah, dude, we we cleared the Caves of Chaos. Let's just uh, go back to farming now, I guess. (laughs) I think a lot of this depends on where in the campaign you are. Obviously, early on, those early arcs, they can have a small payoff, or, or honestly, they can be used to get rid of a plot hook 
that was either introduced in a backstory or started early that just isn't really necessary anymore. Or, or that you don't really like as a GM. Yeah. <laughs> right. You just, oh, cool. Like, we'll just get rid of that early right. and then you can get into what I like. Right. <laughs> Four different players are looking for a lost brother. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, they're all going to be found in the same place. Yeah. All right. The same thing happened to all of them. Right. And we're going to knock that out in session three. Right. And they're all prisoners of war, obviously. Yep. Done. <laughs> now we can move on to something more interesting. Who kidnapped them? Right. So, yeah, during the first maybe two-thirds of your campaign, the revelation that happens at the end of an, an arc, either, you know, the loot that you get from completing a task or the information that you get from discovering something, it, it needs to lead to something new. You know, maybe that information actually leaves you with more questions than answers than you had in the first place. Yeah, you, you found the answer to your question, but it turns out you were a asking the wrong question. It turns out it wasn't packs with devils that destroyed the ancient tiefling civilization. That's really weird. Right. Or a smaller task can snowball into a larger one. So when you get to the bottom of the Caves of Chaos and find the artifact that was buried there, you find it's one of the rod of seven parts. Well, there are six other parts out there. <laughs> Naturally, your inclination is to go find the other six. You got to Rivendell. You brought them the ring. Right now, <laughs> we need you to go to Mordor. <laughs> right. You know what? You got here. And that proves that you are actually capable of much more. <laughs> right. <laughs> In fact, you're the only one capable of this. Everyone else has died trying. Now that you've succeeded, the burden is yours. Right. Congratulations. Like, oh, you did a great job in the Battle of Helm's Deep. <laughs> Can I interest you in the Pelennor Fields? Right. <laughs> How about some Nazgul? And then the last one is dealing with the consequences of your decision, mm -hmm. right? So if you make a decision that has a major impact on the world around you, well, let's now explore the ripples of that effect, such as restoring Seer to the center of Corvair in huh. Eberron. <laughs> So that Cold War is over. Right, yeah. Our Cold War just heated up a bit. <laughs> or even just more simple character decisions. You know, do I go monk or rogue? Which has a mechanical impact, but certainly plays out in the game. But if you decide to go monk, well, where are you getting that training? Right. If you decide to go rogue, well, is the Thieves Guild going to come a-knocking yeah, and say, who, well... Right. When you make a decision like that, who's left holding the bag, mm -hmm. right? And how do they feel about that? Because I'm sure that that temple of monks... Not particularly thrilled about losing one of their order. Probably yeah. has a form of justice for that. Your <laughs> lack of discipline is disappointing us. Of course, the Thieves Guild might be good friends now. Right. <laughs> oh, the monks, huh? Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm sure the Thieves Guild is happy to offer protection for a you know small job here or there that you and your very, very capable allies are definitely handling. In fact, you've proven that you're capable of handling right. this. <laughs> but of course, if you're nearing the end of your campaign... You really want the end of an arc to be more definitive, you know, to really deliver that satisfying punch at the end where someone can say, well, that was a really cool thing that happened to my character. The kinds of stories that you want to hear years later, aside from the epilogue to the story or the final battle, this is the last thing that's really going to happen in the story to this character. I think that's important, too, is you want to have the character arcs end just before the final battle. So you get a chance to sort of bask in the glory of having completed it before you end your campaign for good. Yeah, if you're trying to be the greatest of all time, a few levels of actually being the greatest of all time is really nice. Yeah, it's nice when you hit goat when you're <laughs> at level 18. <laughs> so I have never played a one-on-one -on -one campaign before. So 
I'm always having to balance the needs and wants and goals of one character with the needs and wants of goals of three, four, or five other characters. Yeah, you got four to six players plus an overarching plot. You don't want to have to juggle parallel plot lines and arcs all at the same time. Right. I think when you're really trying to tie all of these together and, you know, maybe have two, three, maximum four strands that you're tugging on at a time, fate is totally your friend. You know, what was the reason that the party came together in the first place? Well, you know, they have a lot in common. Maybe it turns out that they're after the same goal. They want to complete the same task. They might have relatives who are the same person. They might be from the same nation. I really like that as a as an epilogue to a campaign, actually, is sort of that montage of how each of the characters ended up in that tavern on that particular day when they decided <laughs> to answer that call for adventurers to go to the Caves of Chaos, <laughs> right? It's just like, what was happening that day? <laughs> like, why? How do we all end up together? Who pulled those strings? Yeah, I think that's something you get a lot in stories where it turns out that, you know, the old wizard was the one who gave a person directions to that particular inn at that particular time right? and caused a small flood in the street so that uh, someone else was diverted. So fate doesn't necessarily have to be the broad concept of fate, right? It can Mm -hmm. actually be a powerful individual or or somebody who had the capability of setting things in motion, even if they didn't realize what the total effect was going to be. Or, I mean, it could just be fate proper. I used the draconic prophecy as a deus ex machina for pretty much anything I needed you guys to do. Yeah, that's fine too. I mean, if that fits in your setting, that's great. You know, in Shadowrun, it could be an advanced computer algorithm that's Mm -hmm. pulling you in the right direction. Or think about the Wheel of Time. You know, you have these main characters who are in the same place at the same time because that's the way the wheel spins out these threads of fate. They are Taveran. Right. Or, you know, the Force is a great deus ex machina explainer (laughs) in Star Wars. (laughs) And it is important to note that all of these new arcs that get spun off when a character arc is completed, they don't need to be for the character that completed that arc. Completing the task or gaining information for character A can actually lead to a new arc for character C. Right. And that's a really nice way to tie everyone together more tightly as the campaign continues because, you know... You start with many different paths at the beginning of a campaign because there are lots of different directions the story could go in depending on what everyone at the table actually wants. But as you get nearer the end, everything sort of funnels toward a common goal that you're all agreeing on, both at the table and in the actual game. So start bending in these plot hooks and these loose ends. Tie it into something else that already exists that some other character is dealing with. So let's use some examples from the Morning Glory campaign. We've got six characters who made it in the campaign. So we talked about before, Lou's first arc ended pretty early. It was her initial temptation when the party met Belashira in Zendrik. You know, Belashira was offering to restore her to her former glory as a Dalkir, an aberrant overlord. And Lou was deciding, okay, do I, you know, join forces with this Delkir and become what I think I was before? Or do I sort of continue this weird, oddly human kind of path and do quote unquote good things for people? Right. It's funny that you say the temptation was the arc because I thought the discovery of her past, confirmation one way or the other was sort of her arc. She didn't get confirmation from Belashira because she was pretty sure that Belashira was, was lying. Well, yeah, she couldn't. She couldn't <laughs> determine right. it, yeah. which is why if that spun off the arc of okay, Belashira gave me information. Yep. I need to know if this is true. I need to find someone who can confirm it. 
that's probably dragons. And that was the observatory in the Pit of Five Sorrows? There was that, and then also that she struck a deal separately, actually, before going into the Pit of Five Sorrows with the chamber, saying, I want all of your information on Dalkir. Right. You give it to me specifically if we complete this task. Right. And they were like, all right, you very strange person. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this was eight levels later. She then gets information that confirms actually sort of her worst fears, that she was actually just created as a vessel for Dalkir to escape Kyber. Womp womp. Although I will say, there's still another bit of Luzark that has yet to be revealed, which we'll get into later. I noticed that Susie, the player, was actually a little deflated after she found out that like she hadn't been Cthulhu in a previous life. Oh yeah. So yeah. this is a classic moment of having to rewrite that backstory in the last, Maybe the a, last few episodes. Maybe a minor bit of a retcon going, yeah. oh, that fell flat, huh? That's what the last season is for. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great thing about these early character arcs is if they don't end with like a a bang, you know, but they sort of fizzle with a whimper, then you've got a chance to turn them into something else or to subvert them later. Yep. So what about Bahar, everybody's favorite Madani rogue? The interesting thing about Angela was that, we talked about this before, he is very invested in moving plot forward. Yeah, he really loves the plot as a player. Yeah, just in the game. And so you don't need to do a whole lot to get whatever character Angela was playing invested in the story or to take the first step toward actually accomplishing something. So he did give a hook about, you know, wanting to know what happened to his parents. He found out what happened, and that was satisfying as a player, depressing for the PC, right. <laughs> but it totally worked for him. He was happy with that, and now he was on board with, we know what happened with the Day of Mourning, we're going to save the world, let's do that. Yeah, he was totally just generic good, right? Like, <laughs> everyday good guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for him, it was much more about discovery. And so it was nice because he sort of took that at times leadership position in the party and so each new plot arc ended up being the end of a a character arc and the beginning of a new one for Bahar yeah and then he also had internal sort of moral struggles because the edict of House Madani is not to be involved right they're the observers and uh, he was constantly being dragged into our fights (laughs) yeah probably around level 15 or so I was talking with Angelo and determining do you want house Madani to play a bigger role in this you know your house obviously is like one of the 12 dragon mark houses it can play an outsized role they can really step in here and he was like well i think actually i'm okay with sort of stepping away from the house and sort of becoming less involved with them i'm more invested as a player in the story plot so let's move in that direction so great that's what we did yep brand had many different shorter arcs that were spun out and then quickly resolved and before another one sort of popped up yeah you could say that (laughs) he had a winding path some of these were due to mechanical issues things that you wanted to do with the character yeah yeah so my backstory the way i tied into the group as it was when i joined the campaign was that i was trying to chase down nistrum to return him to flame keep for an inquisition accounting right answer for what you've been accused of are you a heretic which he roundly rejected (laughs) (laughs) and then i figured out that we had to kill him you know it was like you had your chance dude but now we're gonna kill you and then you were trying to decide if you wanted to respect your character right so we started 
with the D&D Next playtest, mm-hmm. and then 5th edition was formally released in the middle of the campaign. And I told everyone, you know, if you want to play a different character, we'll figure it out. If you want to play the same character but change their build, that's okay too. Yeah, and so I went from a human cleric to a half-elf sorcerer. But we needed an in-game reason for that to happen. And I was a dragon sorcerer. Mm-hmm. So that's where the Sybaris arc, when Sybaris being the good aligned dragon of the pseudo-pantheon of Eberron. Your new character arc that spun out of this was trying to figure out what that actually meant and then trying to figure out a way to sort of revive the worship of Sybaris, the dead progenitor dragon. Yeah, that was a very brief arc in which I, <laughs> I realized that uh, Sybaris not alive. <laughs> well, one of the things I needed to do was sort of pull you back in with everyone else. So right. <laughs> yeah, then you found out through research that it was really basically the traveler who was masquerading as Sybaris. Yeah, I found lots of evidence that led me to believe it was not Sybaris. And then I sort of just silently folded myself back into the silver flame. <laughs> like, like I had never left the Inquisition, really. Well, with a renewed a belief in the silver flame. Because right. through that research, you found out the true nature of the silver flame. Right. And that actually brought me to our, our final arc, the one that we're still working through in our recaps now, is that we needed to purge Belshalor from the Silver Flame, particularly right. before he escaped. <laughs> Which basically brought your goal in line with the rest of the parties. Well, it's weird because it was the only time in the campaign where Bran was sort of the leader behind our main plot action, mm-hmm. right? Like Bran had always been sort of an outsider tacking along for convenience because our goals aligned and this is the first time that Bran's goal was the party goal and he didn't really care that these awful non-believers were doing it for their own selfish reasons he just needed help (laughs) (laughs) I guess we'll find out if he was successful in a few weeks right (laughs) Emery we've talked about this before didn't really have an arc that she began with you know her parents had been killed by devils so she had a, a grudge but she wasn't actively seeking anything so I've talked about before how I introduced a complication when the party was dealing with the angels and that they said, you know, you don't have a soul. It was sold devils, by the way. In a lot of ways, her arc didn't even start until high level. Yeah. Because we were mid-teens before she found out that she was missing a soul. Uh, Yeah, I think level 14, right around the uh, trial with the angels. Mm -hmm. And then once that happened, it sort of coalesced as her realizing that she was well suited to killing fiends in the first place right which ended up being a pretty easy arc to both nurse and then eventually help complete because she just needed to be able to actually finish off some high level fiends (laughs) right she had a couple in mind (laughs) so calic had a good arc too he was generic angry guy for a long time. He had lost everything in the day of mourning and just wanted to rage against the world. In order to end this, I will readily admit that I am guilty of doing something pretty tropey, which was to subvert his initial goal, right? He wanted to like rage and destroy. And so very early on, I told myself, uh, Sears not gone. Right. In fact, I want him to contend with his rage having been not worthwhile and in fact kind of impotent yeah so once we realized seer was still there then he totally shifted into well obviously we have to bring it back Mm -hmm. we must save my people he became this this champion this sort of reverse moses right like from (laughs) single-minded rage to single-minded save (laughs) (laughs) 
And in the same way that Bren was always sort of like, uh, I don't know. I guess I'll tag along with you guys. Calic was always the one Bren was kind of tagging along with. Right. He was like, no, we know exactly the next thing we need to do and where we need to go. <laughs> Calic and Bren were like a buddy cop comedy. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes Calic was like, uh, fine, I guess we can delay a little bit because it seems like we have to go do this other thing so that we will be better prepared. Right. <laughs> And then finally, of course, he had to redeem himself, right? That's kind of that Holy Avenger arc that we talked about earlier with mm. his family sword. Right. Seer is saved, uh, but now he needed to save himself. Right. Sort of almost redeem himself in the eyes of his ancestors. Mm-hmm. As for Bastion, he wanted to save his people, the Warforged, but... He had a strange way of going about it. <laughs> it was basically get as powerful as possible. So he can fight anyone who oppresses Warforged. <laughs> Now, he did do a very good job of making powerful allies and becoming quite a terror on his own, developing mm-hmm. a name for himself, yeah. a champion of his people. He helped take out the Lord of Blades, who was sort of his only other competition his for, only the, rival. Right, <laughs> for the hearts and minds of the Warforged people. Which turns out to be a good move. I mean, that dude was pure evil. It's true. However, Bastion's arc has not yet come to an end, his main arc. In fact, we'll see later on in the morning glory recaps exactly where that goes the fate of the warforged people if they're in fact people quote unquote do you hear that ishan i think that must be the sound of bastion ministering to his people it sounds strangely like binary (laughs) it's very odd well, it uh, means it's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us, if you can't fit it into 140 characters, at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. All right, we're running long on time, but we're going to get through this character creation forge. Swamp Thing, Ishan, what is it? A long-running comic book, series of movies, a cartoon. Swamp Thing is the protector of nature's flora, the plants of the earth. Also a live-action TV show. <laughs> He's basically a humanoid-shaped animated mass of plant matter. That sort of rises up out of the swamp to meet out justice. So he can control plants. He can travel through them, basically teleport wherever there are plants. And he can reconstitute himself. So he basically heals by just sort of amassing more plant matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he fights basically by just sort of walking up and punching things. Because he's a really big mass of vines and plants. Mm-hmm. Well, and he also has his weird tricks too, right? He like just develops spikes on his body when someone's going to punch him or mm-hmm. whatever. Total control of plants. Right. <laughs> it's a little like poison ivy, but... Less sexual. <laughs> gooier. Yeah. yeah. So what's the build? We're actually using some classes that rarely get, and in one case have never gotten any play in the Character Creation Forge. Long time, first time. So the build is Swamp Druid, 14, Paladin of the Ancients, 6. So this is going to be a strength wisdom build, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit of charisma thrown in. Yeah, whatever extra points you, you have, go ahead and throw that in there. Your wisdom primary, because you're mostly druid, you've got all of those spells that control and manipulate plants. 
And, you know, if you want to swaddle yourself in them so you actually are sort of like wrapped in plants, hey, you got bark skin, you got all kinds of things. You yeah. can go for it. Yep. So your damage output is obviously from palette. And I mean, this is a combination that we've used a lot before because it's really effective, you know, melee spellcaster, which is a, a paladin base. So you can use smite with those deep spell slots and just feed them into your smites and then, you know, use other spells for uh, utility or direct damage if you need it. Right. Yeah. You get a lot of ritual spells with a druid as well that are super handy. With 14 levels of druid, you've got seventh level druid spells. So you're going to get things like regenerate, which lets you regrow those body parts and regain hit points and you know you just flavor that as grabbing more plants and sticking them on to whatever part of you is missing mm-hmm. transport via plants which is exactly what swamp thing does just disappearing and reappearing anywhere on the planet that there are more plants you might want to reflavor this ability but you also get tree stride which is you know swamp things thing is he goes into the swamp and then just comes up elsewhere right tree stride you kind of flavor it around swampy trees but you walk into one tree and come out another you also get awakened, so at some point you can just wake up those trees. Right. Guys, fight for me. Right? Because one way to control plants is, you know, to cast Speak with Plants, but another way is to make them your friends. Right. <laughs> I was actually trying to figure out a way that you could just play an awakened tree, but their stats are terrible. Don't yeah. do it. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to work. Yeah. Wisdom 10. Right. Of course, remember, you are mostly melee. You've got extra attack from Paladin, you've got those smites. Your bread and butter is actually the first level spell Entangle because it creates this area of difficult terrain that, you know, if your enemies fail a strength saving throw, they're restrained. So if you've got any allies who uh, can benefit from that advantage, that's really great. And of course, you can just sort of walk right up to them and pummel them much more easily than you otherwise would be able to. And you get land stride, which means you just ignore difficult terrain. Yep. So it's sort of great to drop Entangle right on yourself. It's tougher for enemies to get to you, and you stay very mobile while they have a really difficult time moving around. At low levels, you can use Thorn Whip, which is the druid cantrip that is a melee spell attack, but with a range of 30 feet. Or you can use a polearm and just sort of stand 10 feet away from them and smack them while they can't really get to you. Yeah, would you say that you whip your thorn back and forth? Yes, I would. You don't remember any other lines of that song? I know nothing about (laughs) anything else about that song. I know that that line is repeated several times, and apparently people play it in the car. Her name is Willow Ishan. <laughs> Another tree. <laughs> you're also going to want Warcaster because you're a melee combatant who needs concentration spells. So that's helpful, giving you an advantage on your constitution saving throws. We don't really need to touch upon them, but as a high-level druid, you get access to all of those planty spells, spike growth plant growth, grasping vine, bark skin. And all of those are actually really great spells. Yep. So go ahead and use those and then walk up and just smite anything that like is unable to move because it's wrapped in vines. Yep, with nature's justice. All right, so Shane, how does your swamp thing become a guardian of the bayou? Well, he was just a hermit living in that swamp out in the wilderness and then one day uh he, he's sort of a, a, a hermit researcher if you will and so he was playing around with plant poultices and those kinds of things and one day a wizard came in and, and tried to help him always happens they worked together on a ritual that led to a calamity all of a sudden he became this planty abomination and uh now he wants revenge you know he's a warrior of nature's justice he met up with his two friends, Tomahawk and Bayou Jack, and he's seeking revenge 
on that evil arcanist who tricked him. Is that too on the nose? It reminds me a little bit of uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Wait, what? No, that was just a farcical series of comedic events that led to the death of some unwitting teenagers. Yeah, but I can see them in a sequel stumbling upon a dark arcanist who's like, I just uh, need some help with some things. And they, of course, will happily agree. Wait, is that actually the plot of the sequel? I don't think there's a sequel. There is a sequel. There's a sequel? There should be a sequel. Oh my God, hold on. I'm leaving right now to go watch it. We'll be right back. We're going to go find out if there's a sequel and watch it. (laughs) Okay, we're back. Ishan, what's your backstory? Mine may also be a bit on the nose. My Swamp Thing is an avatar of a greater plant force. These guys, they're real original. (laughs) Five stars. Best Swamp Thing backstories I've ever read in a comic book before. In the comics, there's a life energy created by all the plants on on the planet called the green and really it just sort of chooses a person who like haplessly is murdered terribly and you know inhabits their their personality and their memories and that person now sort of becomes the avatar of the green and i think that is ultimately a a very good backstory for this kind of character because (laughs) we've talked about it before if you're gonna build this character you probably want to go straight for extra attack Otherwise, you're going to be standing there at level 14 with one attack and, you you know, you're a melee character and you can't really dish it out. Right. So, yeah, beginning as a, a paladin uh, who wants to protect nature, you know, has sworn the oath of the ancients and follows the, the ancient ways and reveres the wilderness and spends time in, in the bayou in the woods. But then maybe an accident like yours, but I, I think more just by spending time out in the woods becomes more attuned to the natural processes and as he grows in in natural power as he you know increases his druid level he realizes that you know i don't even necessarily need to protect the plants if i become the plants of the swamp well it's hard to argue with that if you want to support the show the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on itunes and if you're willing to help us out we'll read your five-star review on the air You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. So we've got a five-star review this week. This is New Listener, five stars by R blank. New to the show, but so far I really like it. You guys have great sound quality and it doesn't sound awkwardly scripted, but you stay on topic, for the most part, to keep the flow of the show going. Interesting topics and helpful hints abound. It's good to know that we are awkwardly improv (laughs) Right. (laughs) So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about narrative control. And in the character creation forge? We're building the master illusionist. Well, that's it for episode 63 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Nobody gives a f*** about the snorks. What? Come along. Oh my god, I'm going to build a snork. Please don't in the do forge. That. Oh, it's gonna be amazing. Yeah, the early nineties had a lot of episodes. Do the Snorks have the same environmental theme though? No, not really. They were really. just like a knockoff of the Smurfs, right? Yeah, yeah. Underwater Smurfs is definitely what they were. Without the like procreation like bees. <laughs> Although I'm pretty sure uh, Smurfs bud. Oh, are they orcs?
<laughs> Remember, a stork delivers a baby on a blue moon. That's how you get baby Smurfs. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, there's only ever one baby, right? Well, so that's the thing that confuses me, right? Because you have, what, 98 regu- like middle-aged Smurfs? Yeah. Who, like, almost have been delivered around the same time, right? right. <laughs> yeah, but so like, only one baby. Right. There's, like, this this big cohort discrepancy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like Japan. <laughs> Poor baby Smurf is going to have to, like, do all the farming and the baking and the tailoring and the, like, vein staring into a mirror. <laughs> all of that needs to be done by one Smurf. Uh, how will Baby Smurf ever do it? I know. Come to think of it, Smurfette was basically a Super Saiyan, right? Because she started off with black hair, and then like she goes blonde. That's really when she comes to the fullness of her abilities. 